Welcome to the Revelation Podcast by Open Bible Baptist Church. We're so glad you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky talks about the rapture and the throne of God found in chapter 4. To learn more about Open Bible Baptist Church, visit openbible.ca. And now here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. There are, uh, there are probably a thousand plus reasons why it is wonderful to be a Christian, but one of the greatest, greatest of all is the hope that Jesus might come at any moment. This is the uh, promise of Scripture. The rapture of the church is the next big event. And let me just, let me just start by saying tonight that, that there is no prophetic fulfillment happening until the rapture takes place. That is the next big event on the prophetic calendar. And so the rapture will take place one of these, one of these days. If there was any way of knowing, we of course we would uh, really talk about that, but there isn't any way of knowing. It's, it's called imminent. Imminent means that you just don't know when. And so the imminency of the Lord's return is so very clearly taught in Scripture. Uh, many people will just lose heart because they haven't seen it in their lifetime or they've heard it for 20 or 30 or 40 years and it hasn't happened yet. So they kind of give up. Well, I want you to know that Paul expected the Lord to return 2,000 years ago. Here we are, and he hasn't yet, but it doesn't mean he won't come tonight or tomorrow. So just as he came in his appropriate time in the first place, he'll come in his appropriate time in the second place. Only he knows when that is. You and I don't know. And anybody who says this sign, that sign, and that sign tells us that he's coming tomorrow or next year or on September 15th, you know, it's just not reliable. That kind of stuff is just not. So the rapture of the saints is imminent. He has promised to come again. He has promised in Acts 1. The purpose is in John chapter 14, where we read that he has prepared a place so that we can come to be with him in the prepared place. He has a program, and that is that he will raise the saints. Those who died in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. I'm amazed at how many people argue today that there's no rapture because the word rapture is not found in the Bible. What do you think caught up means? Rapture, right. It means you've been raptured. It means you've been caught away. So, so people get hung up on the use of a word. So if somebody doesn't like the word rapture, all right, let's use the word there's coming a catching away. Or is that, does that make it easier? To me, it's actually clearer. So there is a catching away coming. That's what the word in 1 Thessalonians 4 says. Catch up is good to you. Even better. All right. How many of you have heard about the ten lost tribes of Israel? Okay. There's a number of you. So you're stu students of Israel and of the uh, of history of Israel and so on. And as you know, that, that uh, there were ten tribes that never actually return to inhabit Israel as a, as in their entirety. So that is something that uh, just hasn't happened. So for years we've heard that the ten tribes are lost. Uh, how many of you heard of the tribe of Manasseh? All right. The tribe of Manasseh is uh, north of Jerusalem. It would be somewhat in the Samaritan territory, but it's, it's really a large portion of the northern part of Israel, just south of the... Uh, south of the Sea of Galilee. 
And so you have uh, Manasseh and the half-tribe of Manasseh, so there was a huge portion that was attributed to Manasseh. Manasseh, of course, was from the 12 tribes, uh, from the 10 tribes that were taken by the Assyrians. And uh, just recently, there was a tribe discovered, well, it's not that recent, it's about maybe 15 or 19 years or so. There's a tribe discovered in northeast India and in China. So between China Northeast India, there's a tribe known as the tribe of Manasseh, which is basically the tribe of Manasseh. At least they believe that they are from the tribe of Manasseh, and they have come over to the land of Israel. And what you're seeing is the excitement that these people have to come over to what they consider their homeland. Throughout the Old Testament, you always read about the people of Israel singing, singing the songs of Zion and singing the songs that give them hope, and they, they sing a lot. Now, as you can see from the features that these people have obviously over the last 2,700 years intermingled, intermarried, and uh, so that they've taken on the look of the uh, East Indians, have also taken on the look of Japanese, or Chinese, I should say, and so they are considered a mixed group. It would be something like the Samaritans who had done the same thing and uh, as far as the Orthodox are concerned, that's another issue. They, they would maybe not be as excited about it as some other people are. But I'm not going to deal anymore with that tonight because this is just kind of a, kind of a scene about the possibility of what will happen when we get to Revelation chapter 7. In chapter 7 there, we notice that there's a 144,000 a choice of 144,000 names, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel. So by the time Revelation 7 takes place, there are enough Jews back in the land that uh, they'll be able to choose 12,000. And he's going to choose, who's going to choose them is going to be God. So he knows who are the people he's going to have represent him as his witnesses on earth to fulfill all of the promises of God. So that will be happening, and when we get to Revelation 7, we'll be talking about that more distinctly, giving you some more information on that. But for tonight, I want us to read at Revelation chapter 4. So if you'd like to read that with me, I'd like you to raise your voice, read it aloud, and uh, we're just going to read the brief chapter, and starting at verse 1, read it with me, please. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, 
The second beast was like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The first thing, as we look at this chapter, we'd already looked at the first verse the last time, uh, the first message we preached on this series, but what we find in verse number two is heaven's throne. And uh, as we look into heaven, we're going to see what John saw 2,000 years ago. Uh, it doesn't necessitate that this scene is what we are going to see, because this was a glimpse to the apostle as to what he would see and give a sense of what it was like up there when he first initially looked into, uh, into the place called heaven. So we have a look into heaven, and the first one we see is the throne as it is presented to us in verse 2. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, what I want you to notice here is that on this throne, we have Christ occupying it. Now, if you, if you do a lot of reading, a lot of study and research, if you have books on the Revelation, you will, you will automatically discover that there is not a consensus as to who is sitting on the throne as to whether it is Christ the Son or as to whether it is God the Father. The, uh, the fact is that there is a person sitting on that throne, and we read in verse number 2 that a throne was in heaven and one sat on the throne. And because the Bible says one, someone, one person sat on the throne, it doesn't actually tell us exactly who it was. So that is left up to the study of the rest of Scripture to discover as to who that might be. Now, remember this. The Bible presents God as a spirit. Uh, Moses encountered him. Jacob encountered him. And he presented himself in various ways. And uh, so we have one sitting here that is obviously presented in a fashion as a man. Uh, not like Justin Trudeau would say, as people. Uh, it, he presented as a man. So we have one sitting on the throne. And my conclusions from what I studied in the scripture is that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who's sitting on this throne. And I want to give you reasons for that as we proceed in this message tonight. But let me read this verse to you that will help you to understand it. In John chapter 5, verse 22. 
It is here that we read this, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto... All right, so who is the Son? Jesus Christ. So if this is a throne, and it appears to be the Bema, it appears to be a throne of judgment, then who is sitting on that throne? If God the Father does not judge anyone... But if he has given all judgment unto the Son, it leads us to the conclusion that what John saw in Revelation 4-2 would be Jesus Christ, the Son. The, uh, the first chapter, of course, there John very clearly says he saw the exalted Christ. So there was no question about whether he could identify who he was. But for some reason, he didn't clearly identify him in chapter 4, verse 2. But it stands to reason taking scripture together, that that is who it would be on the throne. This is significant because of what uh, what this throne is all about. You see, this is the gateway to heaven. So what, what, what the Bible is saying to John and what it is saying to us, I will show you things that shall be hereafter. So hereafter means that when the church age is complete, when... Uh, God designates the moment when the church age is finished and he no longer needs the church on earth. He's going to take the church up to be with him. And immediately what will happen is that there is the judgment seat, the seat that we see here in Revelation chapter 4. It is not functioning before John. It is not doing what that throne is going to do but it is telling us that it is there, and it is telling us that he that sits on it is the one that will judge those who come up before him. Uh, so first of all, I want you to realize this, that this throne and the judgment that will take place at this throne is not to determine destiny, but it is to determine rewards. You see, your destiny is completely settled at the time that you are born again. So when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, he came into your heart. He gave you his Holy Spirit. And he gave you all of the promises that one day you would land up in his presence. He said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there shall you be also. So he said, I will come and receive you. You're going to be with me. So the fact is that every child of God will be there. We don't know who they are. We do know this, that every genuine profession of faith in Jesus Christ results in genuine eternal life for that person. So that person has eternal life. He doesn't have life just for a season to be thrown out. He has life eternal. It is God's kind of life that he gives to the people who believe him. So life eternal comes because of Jesus Christ. So this throne is there to determine the path that we walked, not the place where we will land up. You see, what will happen is when the rapture takes place, Every Christian goes. How many of you have ever heard of the partial rapture theory? Now, there are a number of you have. 
There are a lot of theories about the rapture, including a non-belief in the rapture. So, But then there are some who believe that the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation, and some believe that it comes after the tribulation, and some believe it comes uh, before the big wrath takes place, somewhere in the latter part of the three, last three and a half years of the tribulation. So you got all these various views about that, but the partial rapture theory is really quite interesting. The partial rapture theory says that you will miss the rapture if you are not looking for the rapture at every moment, or if you're not walking just the way you should, you could be left behind to face the great tribulation. There are many, many problems with that. First of all, let me say this, that the tribulation is a judgment from God upon an unbelieving world. It is a judgment that is specifically for Israel because it is called the time of Jacob's trouble. So the time of Jacob's trouble will be that unprecedented tribulation that will happen, but it will infect the entire world. So all the world will come under a judgment. This is not the permanent judgment. This is not the final judgment. This is the judgment of tribulation. Never in the history of the world has ever anything been like what Revelation describes to us about the coming judgment of God upon the world. So when you think in terms of the judgment of God coming upon people, and if people miss the rapture, then let me ask you this. Where's the promise of Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no... To whom? to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So some people play on the who walk not after the flesh. Now we ought not to walk after the flesh. We ought not to be carnal in the way that we live our lives. That, of course, results in giving account at the Bema seat. But the no condemnation is the promise of no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8 also says that if we do not have that spirit of God, then we are none of his. So it comes down to this. We either have him or we don't have him. We either have life eternal or we don't have it. So someone that says that I'm going to miss the rapture because I'm not walking just right with my Lord, he's going to face judgment. That's not consistent with what the Bible teaches. There is a time of accounting coming for people who are not walking in awareness or walking carelessness. And that accounting is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be nice, but it's not condemnation. Condemnation comes upon the people of the tribulation. So what we say is that the bema, the judgment seat, the, the judgment seat that's in the glories that John saw, that'll be the place for handing out rewards or it'll determine the loss of rewards. John, in his second letter, said, be careful that you don't lose those things that you have gained. A man could serve God all of his life, and he comes to a point in his life where he loses hope, and he just loses courage, and he's no longer willing to serve God, and he becomes fleshly, becomes carnal. Guess what? Everything he has done gets lost. He's not lost. He's saved. He's not lost. But everything he's done gets lost. So that's why John said, be careful. You don't lose the things that you gain. 
So there is such a thing as losing rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about all of our works, whatever they are, good, bad, or otherwise, they'll be put into the pool of fire and they will come out and the gold, silver, and precious stone will survive. The wood, hay, and stubble will not survive. So there is the loss, there is the gain. So this judgment seat does not determine entrance to heaven. This is not, this is not the great white throne. The great white throne doesn't determine either. The great white throne just says, here are the measure of judgment you're going to get when it comes to that final judgment. Not you, but unbelievers. The judgment seat of Christ, that's where we can talk about you and me. This is where we are going to appear to be before the judge to see what is it that I'm going to receive as a result of my Christian walk. Am, am I going to be blessed at that time or am I going to be embarrassed at that time? So often the Bible says that we should not be ashamed. We should not be, we should not be walking in a way that is going to make us, uh, make us feel like we should have done better and so on. So this, this throne is not to determine destiny. It is to determine rewards. Uh, it is called the Bema, and the Bema means that it is a rewarding seat. This is kind of an appropriate time. I don't know if any of you watch any of the Olympics, but I don't because I get thoroughly bored at watching the Olympics. But, but I'm aware of them, and I see little glimpses of them here and there. And then when it comes to the final stages of the Olympics, they have this uh, this raised platform where the Olympians come, and they stand up there, and and one receives a bronze medal, another one receives a silver medal, another one receives a gold medal, and uh, and th that's that's what happens. There's nobody brought up there that gets flogged. Did you know that? How would you like to enter the Olympics and then get flogged at the end of it if you didn't win? That's that's not what happens. This is a rewarding time. It's it's either you 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 win the gold, silver, or bronze, or you get nothing. You get a piece of coal. I mean, not even that. So you get nothing. But you don't get punished for it. The punishment would be, I could have had that, but I didn't work hard enough. I could have had that, but I didn't strive for that goal the way that I should have. That's what that's all about. So the bema is the rewarding seat of Christ. The bema is the rewarding seat of believers where we get rewarded or we see the loss of reward. Let me say this. Uh, oftentimes when there are awards handed out for various things. Now, what's happening in churches and young peoples and uh, generally speaking in church gatherings is when there's an award ceremony, we try to award everybody. Uh, and everybody gets something. That's, it's just so very disheartening for kids when they don't get anything. But it used to be that, you know, you know, teachers and schools and churches were a little bit more hard-nosed. If you didn't earn it, you don't get it. Well, the ones that don't get it, oftentimes would go home crying because they didn't get it. They came close, but they didn't get it. And so it was really a, a problem. To them, that was a judgment. When you and I are at the Bema, we could have gotten the reward, but we don't get the reward. It's going to be disheartening. It's going to actually require God to wipe away all tears from our eyes because the loss of reward will sting. Not going to be a pretty thing <clears throat> when we realize that we didn't do what we should have done as believers. So the Bema is what we're talking about here. Some will be saved so as by fire. Others will enjoy an abundant entrance. 
Some will uh, just make it by the skin of the teeth. Just, there will be absolutely nothing except they believed in Christ. Absolutely nothing else, but they did believe, and they maintained their belief. But they didn't contribute anything. I think of the thief on the cross. That man was so thoroughly blessed because today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Right up until that time, that man hadn't done anything that was notable by God. But the one thing that was notable by God was when he called out to Jesus Christ at the last moment of his life. And the Lord says, you're going to be with me in heaven. Guess what? He hasn't. He hasn't gained any rewards except that confession, and that will be a pleasure for sure. God will give him a blessing for that, but, but that's, there's no other reward for him. But let's say that you were saved at the age of 3, 4, 5, or 20, or 25, and you said, okay, now let me just lead the charge. Let me just get in, and let me just serve God with all of my heart. You're building up rewards. There's, in Second Peter, the Bible talks about those who have an abundant entrance. So some get in just simply because they had faith. Some get in because they had faith plus, plus, plus. They had faith, they had service, they had attitude, they had everything that a Christian ought to have. And, and they're just all about serving Christ. They're all about loving Christ. They're all about this whole thing called Christianity. And so they enter into the presence of the Lord and they get an abundant blessing. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. What a tremendous word that is going to be in the day to come. And, and abundant entrance. So that's a part of what the Bema does. Let me talk to you a little bit about the next thing that John saw. Not only did he see the throne that's up in heaven, but he saw heaven's rainbow. Now, I'm going to just talk just a tiny little bit about some people that have, uh, that have hacked our program. But, but I, look at, I look at what's happening in the last decade or so, that there, somebody has moved into something very, very precious and has made it something rather offensive to most of us. Not all Christians believe this, but I do. When I, when I walk into a church, and the only reason I would ever walk into a church like that would be either for a wedding or a, or a funeral, uh, that would be the only reason I would ever walk through the doors of some of these churches. But when I see the minister or ministress of that church come out with a rainbow scarf, when, when the White House was lit up with rainbow colors all up front the rainbow in the former president's time, and when our local schools here put up the rainbow flag and you have the marches and the parades that happen having the rainbow up there, somebody has taken what's precious and putting it upon a movement that is an abominable movement. But what did John see up in heaven? We see that he saw a rainbow. And let me talk a little bit about the rainbow. Uh, and he that sat up to, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So John saw something really wonderful. He saw something like what Noah saw 
for the very first time after the judgment was passed. The uh, rainbow that was evident in the skies after the ark had landed and the waters had subsided and all of a sudden the rainbow appeared. Now, I'll guarantee you, Noah was standing there saying, I wonder what that is. And I'm sure that the few people that survived the flood would have stood there together with their dad and said, what is it, dad? We have never seen this before. Rainbows are a beautiful sight. Rainbows are something that came from God. The rainbow represents a covenant that God made with his people. The rainbow was something that would let Noah and his generations know that this judgment is now past, and God has, by putting the rainbow in the sky, has made a symbol, a sign of his promise that he would never do this. He would never flood the world again uh, as long as the world stands. So the rainbow. Ezekiel saw a rainbow, chapter 1, verse 28, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So a lot of symbols in the book of Ezekiel. But one of the things that Ezekiel talks about is seeing a rainbow in the clouds, making him think about God and making him think about the covenant relationship and the blessing that God had given to uh, his people, Israel, the Jews. Well, this is somewhat like, at least an artist's imagination, of what this throne in heaven looked like. So you've got, you've got the throne, you've got these uh, figures that are sitting around the throne, you've got the person sitting on the throne, but on this you have an emerald rainbow. It's, it's not, it's not in, in, uh, in color like the color of Noah nor the color of Ezekiel's rainbow, but it's the color of emerald. So there's something precious about this rainbow, but it has the effect of a radiance that is shining around the throne, and it's an emerald-like appearance. And then, of course, in the 10th chapter of the book of the Revelation, we have an angel that comes and puts his foot on planet Earth, and the Bible describes him as one that has a rainbow around his head. I should be able to come in here with a rainbow scarf and people should be able to look at that and say, well, that's kind of a neat thing. But if I walked in here tonight with a rainbow scarf, you'd say, what's happened to our pastor? Wouldn't you? Because they have taken what was really significant and precious, they've taken it and they've messed it up. It's just like an ungodly world to do that. It's just like God, it's just like these ungodly people that'll take and they will lower the standards of God and they will abuse it and they'll mock it and they'll make fun of it and then they claim it. So it's been stolen. But I just want you to know this, that whenever you see the rainbow, don't think of the gay parade. When you see a rainbow, you think of God's promise. You think of the fact that one day God will again manifest himself in the times to come through rainbows, which are going to be absolutely glorious in that great day when heaven's doors are open and we actually enter in 
to the presence of the Lord. So we have the, we have the beautiful rainbows that, that show up and they are of God. Don't, don't ever let anybody diminish the significance of the rainbow for you. Well, let's consider heaven's population. At this juncture, at this point in, uh, in John's vision, he sees only a representation of those who are in heaven. He does not at this point see you. He does not at this point see me. What he sees in verses 4 through 9 is he sees the following. First of all, he sees the elders. Who are these elders? Well, even John Wolvard, probably one of the most profound uh, prophetic scholars, just, just, uh, and I've heard him in person. I've traveled miles to hear John Wolver teach on prophecy, and I've got his, some of his books, and I read his articles that he left behind, and he's gone to glory long ago now. But John Wolvert was one of the, one of the stalwarts of the premillennial, pre-tribulational view on the rapture and on the second coming of Christ and so on. He's, he, he was a profound scholar, and he was, of course, the head of Dallas Theological Seminary for a long period in his life. And, and he even says that, that the elders are a division of Israel and the church and 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 i've studied this from different angles and different sources and have really contemplated this and and somehow i don't believe that the elders are a representation of israel and the church you see when john sees the throne at the beginning of revelation the doors to heaven are open and he sees these 24 elders. What he sees at that point, you see, when the rapture takes place, Israel is not even in a state of belief yet. Israel has not come to faith in Christ. At that point in the unfolding prophetic scene, Israel is still in unbelief. What will happen from that point on is that Israel will be gathered even in a greater measure than what you saw on the screen tonight. And it'll be done by the angel forces of heaven where he will gather them from every place in planet earth and bring them back into the land by the, by the act and by the work of God. So that is going to happen. But in Revelation chapter four, they are not yet there. So therefore to have these 12 of them represent Israel I know in chapter 21, there is the representation of the 12 tribes, but not so in Revelation 4. Revelation 4, the 24 elders seem to represent the church and the church only. Because it is at Revelation 4 where the church is complete. Now, I have been told by people, and sometimes when I preach on prophecy, I would have some people who do not believe in the premillennial, I mean, they do not believe in the pre-tribulational return. They believe in premillennial, but not pre-trib, uh, so on. And they've said, you are missing the point. People who are in church today will face the tribulation. Uh, let me again say to you that people in the church will not face the tribulation. That is just, it is objectionable on many points, as I've mentioned earlier in the sermon tonight, so I don't want to repeat that. I just want you to realize that it's only the church that is at 
focal point in Revelation 4. Nobody else. So what we have is we have now the church out, the church up. And now God will begin to deal with Israel. But not until the church is up and the church has gone through that great bema to find their entrance into the glories in heaven. So we have the elders. And then in verse 5, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, he's, he's represented in a very unique way in Revelation chapter 4. For we read, And out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God uh, are just very simply just a representation of the Holy Spirit in his entirety, in all that he is. See, there's nothing simple about the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is not an influence only. He's not a breath only. The Holy Spirit is a third person of the triune God, and he is referred to as seven spirits in Revelation 1-4, Revelation 3, 1, chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 6, chapter... So here we have the Apostle John just simply saying that he had a sense of the Holy Spirit of God, the holiness of God, the absolute purity of God, which was seen by the representation of the Holy Spirit up in heaven. That's the second that he saw by best way as population. And then you have the seraphim and the cherubim. Now, the seraphim and the cherubim are presented to us in a rather unique way as well. Those of you who have studied angels, you know that there are two kinds of angels. You have the worshiping angels that protect the the worship of God. They're called seraphim. Uh, When you have the temple filled with the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6, you've got the, the whole place full and you've got these angels flying through that. And they are worshiping God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. These are the seraphim. You have the cherubim. Cherubs, a cherub was put at the, at the uh, entrance of the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. So they protect the holiness of God. They're not there for the worship so much, although I'm sure they do worship. But they're there as fighting angels. When it comes to the war with Michael in the heavens, as we will see in Revelation chapter 12, it's a cherub that comes. When you see in the book of Daniel and different places where the angels get into battle with other forces, it's cherubs that get into battle. And so what John saw in Revelation chapter 4 at the opening time of the place in heaven was he saw both the worshiping angels and he saw the fighting angels. And they are together. Uh, They're not fighting each other. The cherubim fight evil. The seraphim worship God. They protect the worship of God. And so in verses 6 through 9, you have John, and he sees them represented this way. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, we read, and uh, let's just have a find here of this, in verse number 7, actually in verse number 6. We read, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Uh, it's interesting that the term beasts is used here. The, 
The idea is that they were four representative creatures. And what John saw was he saw the representation of the entire creation of God when he saw these creatures up in heaven around the throne. Uh, if you can see these, the picture, it's, it's quite clear. You have the uh, calf, which is also an ox. You have the eagle. You have the face of a man, and you have the face of a lion. Now, uh, if, if you're just sitting down and reading the book of Revelation, you say, wow, that's really interesting, but you wouldn't know what that was unless you had studied a fair bit. But, but these are interesting creatures. Let me just talk to you about them in, in just, a, just to let you know about what John saw. So when he sees the creature that looked like a lion, of course you know that a lion is the king of the jungle. He is boss. Uh, there's, there's, there's nothing that is as ferocious as a lion. So he is, he is the king of the beast. So John saw the lion representing the entire animal kingdom. Uh, John saw the ox, which is a calf, a young calf, and the only thing that oxen were really used for in the whole work of mankind when John saw all of this was for the purpose of production. Uh, they would reproduce, but they would do more than that. They would be field workers. They would plow the fields, and they would... Uh, lots of illustrations from the Bible about the oxen and how they were used. So John saw the ox. He saw the eagle, and the eagle is that which rules the skies. If you look at any kind of a bird out there, the most majestic, uh, the the one that rules the atmosphere as far as, as the fowl of the heavens, it is the eagle that's up there who is ruling the skies. And you have man who dominates all. So what John saw was that all of creation, everything from the animal kingdom uh, to, uh, to the angelic kingdom, to the human domain. He saw all of this represented in the verses that we have here. So it's a, it's a beautiful sight that he sees all of this. And then we notice heaven's worship. Uh, verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, uh, if you look at verse number 10 again, he says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. Uh, when it comes to worshiping the Lord, when it comes to worshiping God, have you ever noticed that there is a fair bit of carelessness in today's world about worshiping God? Uh, I, I, have been, I have been in churches, and I don't want to go into churches like that for any reason, but I've been in churches where, where they get stomping their feet, and, and they get uh, almost not, not exactly in a dance, but they get stamping their feet on the platform. And, and it's one thing to praise God. It's one thing to be excited about the things of the Lord. It's quite another thing to be careless and to present the worship of God uh, carelessly. Uh, Lois and I were in a church one Sunday morning. And as this was happening and, and the guitarist was doing his best to just jive up and drum up and get everybody just rolling in that right in front of me were a couple of ladies and they were wearing blue jeans and uh, it just it just okay that's what they were wearing 
And as this guy was getting the music going, all of a sudden I saw these big hips in front of me just swaying back and forth. And I said to Lois, I said, you know what? I said, I would not be in a church like this. I said, this would not be. I said, this is sensual. This is not, this is not honoring to God. I don't care what anybody says about being judgmental. I don't care what anybody says about being old-fashioned. I don't care what anybody says about that. That's just not something that makes a man worship God. That, that's something that it just, it just stirred up within me in anger. It wasn't sensual to me. It was anger in me because I said, maybe, maybe some man who is weak in the flesh who is not really committed yet to God, but he's come to church and he wants to hear something from the Bible and he sees this jigging of the hips that's going on in service, he's not going to be hearing much of what the Spirit of God is saying to him. When I look at Revelation chapter 4 and I see the elders representative of the whole church, every Christian represented here, and I see the elders here, they fall down before him that sat on the throne. They have a sense of worship for the Savior. They bow to him. There's a sense of awe about the worship of God. There's a sense of, of we cannot be careless in our worship. And they worship him that liveth forever and ever. And so they are in a, they are in a mode of worshiping before God. And if you notice here that in verse number 11, it says, here's what they were saying as they were worshiping God. It says, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The book of Genesis begins with God creating the entire universe, God making it, the book of the Revelation ends up with the church in heaven recognizing the created work of God. We're living in a world where God and his creation is not recognized. In fact, it's looked down upon as not being very smart. And I don't care an awful lot as to whether they think we're smart or not. I just want to be right. And the fact is that these creatures and these personages and these elders, they are worshiping the God of creation. They're honoring him. Now remember, John chapter 1 says, by him, the one that sat on the throne in Revelation 4, by him were all things created and without him was not anything made. So Christ was the one who was functioning in the creative act of the world. Christ is here who is being worshiped as the one who is the creator. Now, there's one thing that I want you to notice as we look at the song of heaven and we look at the worship that's taking place in heaven. And I want you to notice this, that they're saying that they're worshiping him who lives forever and ever, and they take their crowns and they cast them before the throne. Uh, Mark Trammell wrote a song and sang that, oh, some years ago already. It's not very well known today, but... He wrote this, and he and his trio sang this for quite a while, and it's called, What Good Would a Crown Be in the Presence of Royalty? And so we might be striving for a crown. We might be hoping someday to get a crown at the rewarding seat. But I want you to realize 
that that crown will be so meaningless when we see the Savior, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I think whatever crown we gain, I think we will take that crown and just lay it down at his feet. I've spoken with Mark Trammell and I had him in for services and just a real man of God who loves the Lord and uh, he just loves to preach during his concerts when he sings. He loves to preach the word of God and let people know that they need to know the Lord. And uh, just uh, he just did a marvelous thing. But really what he's saying here is that we're just going to lay everything we ever did down at his feet and nothing will be important to us but the one who sits on the throne. So one day we're going to see Jesus. He is the hope of our future. He's our comforter, our guide, our blessing now. He is our blessed hope. Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe and share with your friends. To hear more messages or to learn about how to visit our services, visit openbible.ca. Again, thanks for taking time to listen today.